begin by reading from 2 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 3, starting at verse 14. And we'll read through 2 Timothy 4, verse 2. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. I charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. I'm going to just catch the door here so we can... Okay, let's pray together. Great God of heaven, we thank thee so much for what we've just heard in the worship service and the beautiful way in which thou dost bring together a needy, longing sinner who can only find comfort, security, and rest to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is that only pure rest, the Lord, our righteousness, our comforter, our nearest kinsman, our greater Boaz, our, our elder brother, our Goel, our Savior, and our Lord. And we pray that every one of us may know experientially what that means to find our rest in him and to find in him that perfect bridegroom whom to know is life eternal. And we long for the day, Lord, when we will be with that bridegroom in perfect utopian marriage forever and ever in glory. And we thank thee too for the Puritans who preached him so fully and who presented often in their books to educate us this wonderful, glorious marriage. We thank thee for Edward Pierce's uh, magnificent book, The Best Match, and how he unpacks this bridegroom-bride theme experientially in such a powerful way. And as we talk now in these moments about the Puritan view of education, we pray that it will be edifying and instructive and that we would understand things about our forefathers that perhaps we never knew before. And from their teaching on education, may we learn the importance of combining academics and genuine piety and follow them insofar as they followed in this area the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We ask thy benediction now upon this class. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, just, just a quick word of, of intro here. Leland Riken will be uh, speaking to us about for 15 minutes uh, on video. And Leland Riken actually has a chapter in his book, which is actually quite different from the video, his, his well-known book, Worldly Saints, The Way the Puritans Really Were, is the title. And that is, that's a foundational book on the Puritans, actually probably the best intro book. It's written at a simple level, but it's also um, quotes the Puritans a lot. It's very accurate. It, it combines accuracy and simplicity in, in a wonderful way. I actually even give it out even at the seminary level as an intro book. It's one of the easiest books to read for seminary students of all their textbooks. But because it's so accurate, uh, it's a worthy book to, to hand out. But also in the Puritan documentary uh, itself, in that whole package of materials, which most of you, I think, have at home, um, Michael Reeves and I just produced a 200-page book that's in there. And that aims to be even a shorter, even perhaps even a more simple introduction to the Puritans. Now, the Puritans stressed education, and um, Leland Riken is the perfect man to talk about this because he studied, he's an educator and studied education so much. So you'll find it interesting at what he says about the Puritan view. And, and just keep two words in mind, academics and piety. Head and heart. Uh, that's what the Puritans stress, not as antonyms to each other or, or antithetical to each other, but actually belonging together. And so in education, they were never satisfied without heart involvement, without the piety end of things, the living out the doctrines we teach. But they also said that head knowledge is the soil in which the Holy Spirit plants the seed of regeneration and then produces fruit so that we have heart knowledge. So in their mind, academics was a great plus, but insufficient for eternity. Piety, genuine spirit work piety, was essential for spiritual life, but that piety was inseparable from academics. And so the Puritans had a huge, huge emphasis on education. But always, 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 so that the heart might be renovated and the life transformed and the whole man be ministered to, head, heart, and hands. So let's look at the video now, and then afterwards I'll make a few more applicatory comments. Turn off the lights, please. Thank you. Godly and learned, 
Ideals and Practice in Puritan Education. I want to begin by correcting three common misconceptions regarding the Puritans and education. The first is that the Puritan movement was a narrowly religious movement that neglected education and the life of the mind. On the contrary, the Puritans in both England and America championed education and the intellectual life. Founding schools became a hallmark of the Puritan movement. In England, the number of grammar schools doubled while the Puritans were in control. An English Puritan told members of Parliament that God expected them to be foster fathers of knowledge. In America, no other English-speaking colonizers established higher education as quickly as the Puritans did. Just six years after arriving in Massachusetts Bay, the Puritans founded Harvard College. A famous document entitled England's First Fruits gives this account of the founding of Harvard College. After God had carried us safe to New England, and we had builded our houses, provided necessaries for our livelihood, reared convenient places for God's worship, and settled the civil government, one of the first things we longed for and looked after was to advance learning and perpetuate it to posterity. A second mistaken charge brought against the Puritans is that they were largely ignorant people who knew their Bible and Christian doctrine, but not much beyond that. The charge is untrue. The early settlers of Massachusetts included more than 100 graduates of Oxford and Cambridge universities. One historian has called Puritan Massachusetts the best educated community the world has ever known. One of the adjectives most frequently used by the Puritans to describe their ideal preacher was the adjective learned, which was nearly always paired with the adjective godly. Godly and learned, that was the Puritan ideal. English Puritan William Burkett claimed that three things are necessary for the Christian life, knowledge, faith, and righteous living. Listen to how he outlined the process by which this is achieved. Knowledge is the foundation of our faith, and faith the foundation of our obedience, and obedience the condition of our happiness. The starting point is knowledge. A third stereotype that needs to be refuted is that when the Puritans did get around to education, the result was what we know as Bible schools as opposed to colleges. Again, the stereotype is wrong. Students at Harvard College not only learned to read the Bible in its original languages and to expound theology, they also studied mathematics, astronomy, physics, botany, chemistry, philosophy, poetry, history, and medicine. Having countered certain stereotypes of the Puritans in regard to education, I will explore five pillars of Puritan education. The first pillar was the high value that the Puritans placed on truth and knowledge, and correspondingly their aversion to ignorance. The educated mind in all spheres of thought was a Puritan ideal. Ignorance was a great aversion to the Puritans. William Perkins went so far as to say, where ignorance reigns, there reigns sin. Richard Baxter believed that education is God's ordinary way for the conveyance of his grace and ought not to be set in opposition to the Spirit. Samuel Willard claimed that faith is grounded upon knowledge, and John Preston similarly theorized that you cannot have more grace than you have knowledge. Puritan poet John Milton wrote a moving letter to his father 
in which he paid this tribute to him regarding the education that he had received. Father, you did not enjoin me to go where the broad way lies open, where money slides more easily into the hand, and the golden hope of piling up wealth shines bright and sure, desiring rather that my mind should be cultivated and enriched. What greater wealth could a father have given? A mind cultivated and enriched is what the Puritans prized. A second pillar of Puritan education was clear thinking about the purpose or end of education. The primary purpose of education, according to the Puritans, was to produce a godly person. The statutes of Emmanuel College, the most Puritan of colleges at Cambridge University, stated the following. There are three things which, above all, we desire all the fellows of this college to attend to. To wit, the worship of God, the increase of the faith, and probity of morals. This is similar to the following rule for students at Harvard College upon its founding. Quote, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well that the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, John 17, verse 3, and therefore to lay Christ at the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. When Thomas Shepard's son entered Harvard as a student, the father wrote to his son, remember the end of your life which is coming back again to God and fellowship with God. Most famous of all such statements about the goal of education is John Milton's definition of the Christian aspect of education. I quote, the end then of learning is to repair the ruins of our first parents by regaining to know God aright and out of that knowledge to love him, to imitate him, to be like him. Becoming like God that requires a student to value what God values, including the true, the good, and the beautiful. Thirdly, as an, as an extension of this religious goal of education, the Puritans made the Bible central to the school curriculum. On this point, they followed Martin Luther, who had said that, quote, above all, the foremost reading for everybody, both in universities and in schools, should be Holy Scripture. I would advise no one to send his child where the Holy Scriptures are not supreme. A famous 1647 statute in Massachusetts, known to posterity as Ye Old Deluder Act, gave the following reason for establishing schools. It is one chief project of Ye Old Deluder Satan to keep people from the knowledge of the Scriptures. The way to foil Satan was to educate people to read and study the Bible. The Puritan's aim in the classroom was to measure all human knowledge by the standard of biblical truth. A stipulation at Rivington School, one of many grammar schools founded by the Puritans in Northern England, was that the instruction must be in accord with, quote, that which is contained in the Holy Bible. The first three educational pillars that I have ascribed to the Puritans are exactly what we would expect. The next one belongs to the category of the Puritans that no one knows. Although the ultimate goal of education was spiritual, the curriculum was thoroughly classical and humanistic in its content. Puritan schools and universities were liberal arts institutions. The curriculum covered all known subjects of the Renaissance, including a very heavy emphasis on mastery of written and spoken Latin, which was the international scholarly language of the day. 
If you look at the curriculum at Calvin School in Geneva, you will be initially perplexed. The readings are nearly all classical, consisting of authors like Cicero, Homer, and Virgil. Of 27 weekly lectures, three were in theology and three in ethics, and all the rest in non-religious subjects. New England Puritan pastor Cotton Mather praised the then president of Harvard College, not only for how constantly he expounded the scriptures to them in the college hall, but also how learnedly he conveyed all the liberal arts unto those who sat at his feet. The classical and humanistic side of Puritan education will fall into place if we are aware of its doctrinal underpinning, namely, the doctrine of common grace. According to this doctrine, God has dispensed the capacity for truth, goodness, and beauty in some measure on the entire human race, and not only on those who are saved by God's special grace. To use Puritan terminology, God has revealed himself in two great books, the Bible and the Book of Nature and Human Reason. English Puritan Edward Reynolds wrote, there is a knowledge of God natural in all his works and a knowledge supernatural by revelation out of the word. And though this be the principle, yet the other is to be understood. Samuel Rutherford said, it is false that scripture only is contradistinguished from the law of nature can direct us to heaven, for both concur in a special manner, nor is the one exclusive of the other. Philip Melanchthon, Martin Luther's collaborator, expressed a principle that the Puritans endorsed as follows. Some teach absolutely nothing out of the sacred scriptures. Some teach the children absolutely nothing but the sacred scriptures, both of which are not to be tolerated. This explains why Thomas Shepard wrote to his son at Harvard College, remember that not only heavenly and spiritual and supernatural knowledge descends from God, but also all natural and human learning and abilities. From this flowed a theory of the unity and interrelatedness of all knowledge. Samuel Mather claimed that all the arts, that is all the academic disciplines, are nothing else but the beams and rays of the wisdom of the first being in the creatures, shining and reflecting thence upon the mirror of man's understanding, and as from him they come, so to him they tend. Hence, there is an affinity and kindred of all academic subjects. One makes use of another, one serves to another, till they all reach and return to him. A modern scholar summarizes the situation by saying that in view of the Puritan's belief in the unity of knowledge, to surrender any of the arts and sciences was unthinkable. My fifth Puritan pillar in regard to education flows naturally from the liberal arts curriculum that I have outlined. If the ultimate goal of Puritan education was to become like God, a secondary and immediate goal was to produce a person prepared for all of life. Luther had again provided a good model. He had written to the councilman of Germany, if I had children and could manage it, I would have them study not only language and history, but also singing and music, together with the whole of mathematics. The ancient Greeks trained their children in these disciplines. They grew up to be people of wondrous ability, subsequently fit for everything. The person fit for everything is what the Puritans expected from education, and it was achieved by a comprehensive rather than specialized education. English Puritan Robert Cleaver 
theorized that no matter what profession a person enters, the more skill and knowledge he hath in the liberal sciences, so much the sooner shall he learn his occupation, and the more ready shall he be about the same. The most famous statement of this ideal comes from John Milton's treatise entitled Of Education, where he offers the following definition of liberal arts education to balance his definition of the Christian side of education. I call, therefore, a complete and generous education that which fits a person to perform justly, skillfully, and magnanimously all the offices, both private and public, of peace and war. The Puritans wished to educate the whole person for all of life. American Puritan Samuel Willard summed up the ideal when he wrote, the word of God and rule of religion teach us to improve every human faculty that is in us to the glory of God who gave them to us. This then is the Puritan theory and practice of education. The starting premise is that truth and knowledge are supremely important. The ultimate goal is godly thinking and living, becoming like God. The Bible is at the center of the curriculum, but the whole span of human knowledge is also studied. Preparation for all of life is the immediate goal of this comprehensive education. All of the foregoing ingredients were designed for life in this world and the life to come. If we are looking for a formula that will cover all five pillars, the title of a funeral sermon preached by American Puritan Increase Mather will suffice. The title was David Serving God and His Generation based on an allusion to Acts 13, verse 36, where Paul, in a sermon, offered David as a model of someone who served God in his own generation. Puritan education aimed to equip children and young people and adults to serve God in their generation. The goal was fitness for life on earth and life in heaven. As William Perkins said, you should ask that son, first of all, before you, as you consider your future, first of all, make sure God is not calling you to be a minister before you consider other professions. Now, we do the opposite mostly, don't we? Consider other professions unless God powerfully calls you to the ministry. The minister, you see, was the most educated person in the entire village. He was looked to as the man of wisdom. And so the Puritans said, a man called to the ministry who is not highly educated, and I mean highly, was unworthy to be a minister in the church of Jesus Christ. 
Richard Greaves puts it this way, the Puritan stress on an educated clergy was the assumption that the congregation of elect would not question the authority and orthodoxy of the church if the congregation had been properly instructed by an educated clergy. To allow uneducated ministers to assume the homiletic task of preaching sermons was to invite the undermining of the whole social, political, and ecclesiastical system upon which English society itself was founded. So the only preventive to such social suicide was a strong university program able to train men in divinity in preparation for guiding the masses in the ways of political and religious orthodoxy. So the Puritans would train their men well, and almost inevitably they would go either to Oxford or to Cambridge University. Those were the two main schools. Now, what we need to understand, and you may not be familiar with this, so let me just explain it a moment. Each of those universities had what they called colleges within the university. Still today, if you go to Oxford or Cambridge, you can go from college to college within the university. So to have 10 to 15 colleges with different specialties within Oxford, within Cambridge, uh, was, was commonplace. And that was the way education was structured in some other countries as well. And so what would happen is you would pick out a specialty, you go to that particular college that really had professors that excelled there, and then you'd be trained. You'd be a graduate, say, from Jesus College in Oxford or Emmanuel College at Cambridge. So picture a whole bunch of independent colleges and yet tied together in one great big plot of land. That's what Oxford was. That's what Cambridge was. So there were certain of those colleges, probably four or five of them, that became known as hotbeds of Puritanism. And what that means is they had professors, it wasn't the majority of them, but they had professors who were very Puritan-minded. And if you were Puritan-minded when you went to Oxford or Cambridge, you would definitely sign up in one of those schools. At the same time, both in Oxford and in Cambridge, some of the most famous Puritan preachers were situated there for, for Lord's Day worship services. And some of the students would come and they'd go into a bit more of the secular colleges. And they'd come under the preaching, say, of William Perkins or Paul Baines, and they'd get converted. And they would, the following week, they'd switch from that college and they'd go over to one of the hotbed Puritan colleges um, and the most famous of those, as you heard Leland Riken say, perhaps, was Emmanuel College. That was so many, so many ministers went and trained there because they wanted to train under a man named Lawrence Chaderton. Why have you never heard of Lawrence Chaderton? Well, history is not kind to people that don't write books. 
And Lawrence Chaderton only wrote two chapters on, on education. And I actually did an article in uh, a Feshrift for uh, James DeYoung, I believe it was, on, on the life and the educational philosophy of Lawrence Chaderton. Well, Lawrence Chaderton really was what Vucis was in the Netherlands. He was to English Puritanism. He really combined these two things, academics and piety. That was his goal in training the students. And his goal was to model that himself. So even though he wasn't well known, to, isn't well known today because he didn't leave much of a trail of literature behind or books behind, in his own day, he may well have been the most influential Puritan of anyone because he actually trained hundreds of Puritan ministers. And guess what? A typical Puritan in those days, if you, if you made it into the 60s, I mean, you, you lived a pretty long life. Uh, I would be considered a very old man in Puritan society. Theodore Beza was a rare exception. He lived to be 85. I mean, he was a whole generation after the other reformers. I mean, that was unheard of. Lawrence Chaderton lived to be 104. I mean, that's like living to be 115 today, like one of the oldest people in the entire world. And he was teaching still when he was in his 90s. And he was teaching already as a young man. So he had several generations of teachers that he trained in this academic uh, emphasis slash piety emphasis. Now, what you'll find in many autobiographies and biographies of the Puritans is this heartfelt, deep tribute to Lawrence Chaderton for not only teaching them, but for modeling for them genuine education that combines academics and piety. Now, the only Puritan that became well-known, there was a handful of Puritans that weren't well-educated, 99% of Puritan ministers were extremely well-educated. And that's why we have Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary. That was my original vision, that we would educate men on the level that the Puritans used to do it. I'm, I'm not sure we've quite arrived at that level because it was a very, very high level. But certainly, uh, academically, our goal, I think, has been achieved to, to train our students at the level of any solid reform seminary around, around the world. But our passion, like the Puritans, that's why we're called Puritan Reform, is to train them also in this piety, and to combine these two. That's why we hired an entirely new position, very unusual for seminaries. We have a dean of spiritual formation, Dr. Mark Kelderman. His full-time job is to meet with the students uh, regularly, uh, a couple times a semester, talk to them about their spiritual development. And they, they have to write spiritual journals that he reads and he talks with them about their spirituality. This is, this is vintage Puritan combining academics and piety. John Bunyan is the only one that I know of that became well-known and actually became one of the most famous Puritans that was not well-educated. But interestingly, Bunyan 
learned a lot from his fellow Puritans and read a lot and more or less educated himself. But other than that, where could you find a Puritan who wasn't thoroughly, thoroughly trained in all branches of theology and also history and so on? And they knew Latin well. They, they knew their Greek and Hebrew well. Um, and so you can see that the, the common people in the pew, they really looked up to their minister. And they knew they could go to him for advice in any area of life. And he would be full of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, but the Puritans themselves said, through education and through ministry, because they preached 60 minutes, plus sermons two times on the Lord's Day, they would bring the same approach from the pulpit. They would teach their people, but also move them to godly piety. And so a lot of counseling happened from the, from the pulpit. In fact, the typical Puritan minister believed that when a minister preached rightly, he would do less counseling in private than he would do from the pulpit because he'd be answering the people's questions spiritually from the pulpit. So this university education at Oxford or Cambridge was a big deal in Puritan society as a prerequisite for ministry. And therefore, spiritual experience never became a substitute for education. You needed to have spiritual experience. But that never qualified a man to be a minister. He must also be educated. That was the point. And so, as one Puritan put it, both regeneration and a life of godly piety and education are necessary for the minister of the gospel. Now, the second thing I wanted to mention real quickly before I I close is catechization. We talked a little bit about that a week or two or three ago. But if you were a typical educated Puritan minister, you would write, if you're worth your salt, you would write a, catechize, a catechization booklet that covered all the doctrines of the Bible. It'd usually be, be from 50 to 100 pages. Uh, there were hundreds of these. And you would pass it out. You'd run it off. You'd get a printer to run it off. And you'd pass it out to every family in your church. And then you would go around and you would have a meeting with each family. And you would teach the father, the head of the household, how to teach your catechism book. This actually has its roots already in Luther. You know, Luther said uh, any, any preacher and any father with the Bible and my little catechism book could defeat all the popes in their theology uh, because just a little bit of instruction and good teaching grounded in the Word of God could do more than all the papal inventions. That was Luther's idea. Puritans picked up on that. They enlarged that greatly. And so the minister would train the fathers how to teach their children. The fathers would then teach their children daily in family worship and catechize each child from maybe 45 minutes to two hours individually per week, every week. 
And so that also was a big help to reinforce what was being taught in the school so the children would grow up under this triangle, as we still call it today, of being educated in church, home, and school. So in summary, the Puritan theory of education is a wonderfully unified and integrated whole that aimed to educate the whole person. Samuel Willard summarized it all when he said, The Word of God and rule of religion teach us not to destroy, but to improve every faculty that is within us. That is, your, your conscience, your will, your affections, etc. To the glory of God who gave them to us. For all streams, and this is my concluding statement by Willard, all streams do naturally lead down to the ocean. And all divine truths do is certainly carry us home to God Himself, who is the ultimate essential truth. As all truth comes to us from God, so it leads us back to God. Hence the need of both academics in piety. Let's pray. Great God of heaven, we thank Thee for these few minutes of studying together what the Puritans believed about education. And we pray, Lord, that their model of godliness flowing out of Thy Word, but uh, propagated with the blessing of the Spirit through good, sound, thorough education may be a model for us also in our day to follow in a day in which feelings reign over education and what I want and what I feel becomes all important. Help us rather, Lord, to bow under Thy truth and to obey Thy will and to do Thy word and Thy wishes rather than our own. And so to be rightly grounded in truth and to live out of it and thereby to find true happiness in our lives. For true happiness, as the Puritans would always say, is the fruit of holiness, not the fruit of pursuing happiness. So bless this lesson, we pray, to all of us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming.